It's the same thing with doing anything. Like the hardest part of a run is that first step out the door. The hardest part of any project is just opening up the IDE, maybe. <laughs> anyway, for those who are just joining in, we're just talking about how I couldn't press the record button because this is the first podcast episode and we're calling it the mind of a serial learner. And why did we think that was a good idea, Alicia? Well, this podcast is all about lifelong learning and that process and the pain and turning that pain into a process of perhaps joy and then continued pain, but all in all, trying to lessen the fear of learning something new and taking on a new skill. Maybe we should introduce ourselves first. Let me go ahead since I brought it up. So who are you, Praveen? <laughs> you know, that's the ultimate question. Does anyone really know who they are? <laughs> well, we got existential fast. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Praveen Nagyan and my parents actually bought me a personal computer when I was, let's see, I think when I was seven years old. That was the time when you had 256 kilobytes of RAM and a 40 megabyte hard drive cost around $2,000. Me and my brother would turn on the computer and go and have breakfast and then come back and it still wouldn't have turned on. I've been pretty lucky that I got in computers right when it was getting started. This was famously the time when Bill Gates had said, I don't ever see how there's going to be more than, I should look this up in Google, but I believe he said 15 computers in the whole world or something crazy like that. 15 computers across the planet. Those would be like 15 very big computers. <laughs> There are a lot of people who'd want to share. <laughs> All right. So what about you, Alicia? Well, Praveen, my name is Alicia McLennan. And for me, the introduction to tech was all about video games. When I was little, we had a Texas Instruments TI-99. One of my favorite games was Hunt the Wumpus. That segued into Apple Computers. At school, looking back at my childhood, I realized that it was set in the fabric of learning. You're just always on the computer. And it's grown now into such a pervasive thing that when I was little, it was go to the computer lab and learn how to type. And now I see my nieces who were eight, nine years old on their cell phones. They basically have the equivalent of a supercomputer in their pockets and it's no big deal. That's definitely something that I see happen. I was reading an article about how people are building mind machine interfaces. Elon Musk is doing it. There are a few other startups doing it and they have relative success. And I'm like, mm, I don't really care about that. And that is all science fiction. Literally, people have written science fiction books about mind machine interfaces and other topics like that. And right now we are like not even impressed by any of that. Exactly. It's difficult to say, like over the holidays, I got a Quest VR headset. And it's amazing. Like virtual reality is absolutely stunning. That being said, that headset is so uncomfortable. It's basically like a brick on your face and you're able to run through obstacle courses and get into shooting games. And it's so much fun. It's so realistic. But the reality is I wouldn't be doing this more than like 15 minutes a day before I'd start to feel nauseous. And so thinking about what you just described of like wearable technology, I'd get into that, but only if it were actually comfortable and it's not a chip being inserted in my brain. I'm not there yet. And then speaking of getting existential, I've always been self-aware and I think we both discussed how people have a self-identity. For me, my self-identity, and this is something that I just realized recently, 
And this kind of ties in into the concept of the whole podcast as to why I push myself to learn different things every so often. Just the way I was brought up, the way my parents brought me up, the way I was brought up in India when I was growing up, I identify everything as a test. So even at work, if someone gives me a project, I think, okay, this is a test. Let me study up on this. I haven't heard of this technology. I haven't heard of this process. I haven't heard of this person. And sometimes I'll look up the person, I'll find out how their name is pronounced because I want to ace the test. I've actually had the opportunity to suck at a lot of things from playing poker to stand-up. And I've also had my friends with a lot of their technical startups. And one of my friends had a PR startup. And that was actually one of the times when I was really afraid of learning something new because I've always been what I consider an introvert. And as a PR person, there were hundreds of, maybe even thousands of people sometimes in some of the parties that he went to and he dragged me with him. Yeah, in theory, that sounds awesome. But the reality is that sounds exhausting. <laughs> there's nothing that compares to that. So there's no social activity that gives me anxiety anymore. Nice. Oh, yeah. And I've sucked at a lot of things. And the adage that I eventually learned was to appreciate the challenge and that it's not so much like focusing on an innate talent or like being born with a skill. It's more so about persistence and tenacity. And just if you really want to get good at something, you have to sit with the tedium sometimes and just do it. And so like the things that I've gotten pretty decent at like flying airplanes or programming it's because of just doing stuff and so uh, it's been a process of turning that anxiety that you described into a sense of excitement and, and wonder and turning towards curiosity rather than trying to identify like my immediate ability with my ego because it's not useful to do that because if you start getting discouraged, it's really easy to just say something like, oh, well, you know, I'm not a natural born engineer, so I just can't do this. So for me, it's always been about, okay, just if you want to try running, go ahead, start running. And then that eventually evolved into running marathons. And I'm not a particularly great marathon runner, but I love running marathons. I don't know what that says about me, probably that I'm a bit of a masochist, but yeah, I just like doing stuff. Alicia and I met when she interviewed for her first programming job. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was your first programming job, right? Yeah, I had worked at a data center for a couple of months prior, but that wasn't really programming. That was more like DevOps. But yeah, so my first programming job was that interview, Praveen. The reason why we hired you was basically just because of your attitude. And I think it's an incredible attitude that you have. And that's all that's needed. I just realized looking back at all the interviews, the only people I've ever hired were people who remember the names of the people who interviewed them. Those are the only people I've hired. And those are the people who have worked out best. But there are many people who aren't even curious. They don't even remember our names. They don't even say, okay, at least for this interview, I want to learn what these people are really about, what this organization is really about. And I just remember I was so excited at the interview. I can't remember if I thanked you or not. <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> because I know you moved on in your career. I don't know how much you're involved with interviewing other programmers, but we get a range of people in the business that are literally people who are rushing out 
without even saying thank you. The interview stops and yeah. they say, oh, okay, do you have any questions for us? We had someone who picked up their sunglasses and left. Not even, oh, no, I don't have wow. anything else. Was it a particularly bad interview that they just... No, I think that the person was very self-absorbed. Wow. There's something to be said for just being a human being, even if you're nervous and excited. And I haven't interviewed programmers, but I've done a little bit of recruiting. And I went to one recruiting event where most of the people were like really, you know, into tech. And for me, I just wanted to know, okay, what projects have you done that got you really excited about tech? I don't even care like what it is. I just want to hear your excitement about it. And I remember this one person walked up to me and it wasn't even like a greeting or anything. She just simply said, this is what I'm going to do for you. And she just started rattling off her skills. And it was just like, hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. And then she turned around and left. And it was just like, all right, I'm holding the resume of someone who I wouldn't want to work with. So yeah, there's something to be said for being human. Just transitioning into what most people don't realize when you first start learning something. I'm just talking a bit about why also some people don't want to start learning something as an adult, which kind of transitions into the point of this whole podcast, is that people don't realize that when you first start learning something new, you're actually either you're going to stay constant or you're actually going to get worse at it. That throws a mm -hmm. lot of people out. You might actually start out with coding and you're able to do the first few projects and then someone throws a reasonably hard project and you can't even start. And then you're like, wow, I got worse. Even though the project might have been harder, people immediately get the idea that they might be getting worse. And part of that is, of course, when you first start something, people are actually literally giving you things that are very easy. So the first time you're given a challenge, you mistake not being able to approach that as, oh, okay, I'm actually getting worse the more I work at it. Yeah, having that attitude of thinking like, I can learn from this. I have no idea how to do this, but by the end, I will know how to do this versus tackling an easy problem. You're not going to learn anything from that. You're just going to do it like you're a robot. And that's no fun. Actually, kids learn all the time because what else are they going to do? Set up shop as a certified accountant? That's awesome. <laughs> meet, meet my accountant. <laughs> He's a baby. <laughs> Most of the time, uh, kids, since they're bad at everything, they can't really tell the difference. The problem is that most people who are, I don't know what you call it, but an adult who's self-functioning. What do you call an adult who can take care of self themselves? Self-actualized? I meant that most people who can take care of themselves, they've got a job, they've got an apartment, they're paying rent, as in they're functioning members of society. They've gotten good at something. Maybe they went to school for art and now they're an art teacher, or maybe they are good at music and they are performing music or Maybe even in our case, they went to college for computer science and they got a job as an intern and they're now a junior programmer. So most people get good at something, right? And then sure. they forget that they weren't good at that something when they first started. So they immediately start comparing anything they're learning newly to, why am I not good as this thing that I've been practicing for 10 years? That throws people a lot off. And that's why I was making the comparison for kids because kids suck at everything. Please just start. Oh, yeah. Kids are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> just for the audience, I know that she means they're terrible at doing stuff like kids do karate, violin. Of course, I'm kidding. 
Kids are awesome. They really are. I think we can all learn from kids. Kids have that attitude of just doing it. A kid learning language, they don't care about being grammatically correct. They just want to get their point across and they can refine the rules of grammar later. And they apply that attitude to everything. And just being goal-oriented is key because you can't start to attach your ego to this supposed like skill set that keeps fluctuating, like you're gaining a new color belt in karate. Although we have to apply that measurement to perhaps to have that range of gratification that, okay, you worked this hard at it. Here's a grade. Here's the certificate. Here's a diploma. <laughs> but even with that, it doesn't stop. At that age, they remember the first time they got into a pool and they couldn't even float for more than five seconds. So that's fresh in their mind. But most adults, when they get to the age of 30, I think 30 is a good age when you might think of learning something new. They forget that they were ever bad at something because they're so focused on what they're doing for a living and what they're really good at, what they've been practicing all their life. I mean, I say all their life, of course, some people choose their career in college. Some people just choose it naturally. But whatever path they take, there's something that they're good at because they actually practice it when they were bad at everything. So they got good at this one thing. And then because they got good at it, it actually gave them a positive feedback loop where they were getting rewarded for getting good at something. So they forget that it probably was pretty painful when they first started that. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes that pain can be a, a bit motivating because it's one way of holding yourself accountable. Of, okay, this will be the worst I am at this. <laughs> I can't possibly get worse, although you can get worse at something, but it, it's part of the process. But yeah, it, it, I think it's, it, you're right though. When people do get older, you get fixed in a regimen of like, this is what I am destined to do. This is how my mind is set and I can't do anything else. Or maybe that's an unconscious series of thoughts that it's easier to not try something new. Maybe this is a topic for a future episode because there's a book written. Basically what they said was that you see all these parents and they're taking their kids to swimming, violin, and they're sitting at the sidelines and playing with their phone. And if you ask them to learn something new, they're like, well, I can't do it. But they're forcing their own kids to learn 20 different things. Oh, yeah. You can't really go to an adult, let's say a coworker and say, hey, why didn't you think of yourself as a kid? Or why don't you pretend you're your six-year-old daughter? That kind of turns people off. So maybe in a future episode, we can talk about... Neuroplasticity. I think there's recent research that shows that neuroplasticity stays constant even as an adult, right? Yeah, and it staves off dementia, learning a new language or a new skill. New language is in a spoken language versus a coding language, but either skill would apply in a situation that you can hold off the natural progression of dementia or any of those diseases that would affect the brain and what we would refer to as aging, that you don't have to grow old in thought. If you keep learning, you're going to strengthen those neural connections and be young in the brain which is what this is all about. <laughs> you said that even though you're going to suck at something and that sucks, of course, but how do you actually accomplish that? How do you power through to the other side, so to speak, where you're going to start learning something new? Well, for me, it's a process of acknowledging that it's hard, that there's shame associated with 
getting out there and doing something. Certainly, if there are other people who are watching, it's really difficult to separate, okay, I'm doing this for the first time, or even if it's the millionth time, it's okay. Like, I'm always learning. Like, something like surfing is every single time. So, yeah, this is actually really difficult, but it's amazing to be out on the ocean, even if people are watching me. And I acknowledge that shame and sort of sit with it, and it's okay. And I just do it because I know that I'm getting better. I'm learning something. Sometimes it is painful, but it's also a process of little steps of, okay, like what is the very first thing that I need to do? Is that too big of a problem? I'm going to break that down into smaller problems until I get to the point where it's a small problem, such a small problem of this is the first step. This is how I get out there. And this is what I need to do. Um, but it does come back to that childlike sense of, yeah, just do it. But like, just keep sucking. And then sometimes you don't suck. I think this is a universal problem because I was thinking maybe that's a cultural issue. And when I say cultural, I mean, maybe tied to how we were brought up. At least my parents put a lot of emphasis on learning and doing well. But I think this might be a universal problem. So again, maybe something we could talk about in a future episode because sucking at something is not allowed. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so then my whole life is a lie. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't know how anyone could get anything done if that adage were true. Because then what's the point of challenging yourself? What's the point of taking on something that you've never done before, if not to suck at it? Let's say your boss says, oh, Anisha, I'd like you to work on this new project. Or I'd like to work on this new software, I'd like you to learn a new instrument. Let's say you were an orchestra. I don't know how orchestras work, but let's say, okay, you've been playing the flute all your life. Why didn't you stop playing the violin? Bob Dylan did that with his band for that song, Everybody Must Get Stoned. And it's made to sound like a band where everybody's stoned. <laughs> it's really effective actually, but yeah, it's actually a brilliant technique. Um, I don't know that would apply for an orchestra, but I'm sure there are conductors, actually, who can play 20 different instruments. And because of that ability to just jump to another instrument that's brain strengthening. But I know that's not where you were getting at. Go ahead. No one is allowed to say to their boss, right? Oh, yeah, I'm going to take three months to suck at this. Right? That's ah. universally not allowed. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to a project that I did last year where that very thing happened and it was fine. I learned a lot and I did get what I needed to get done. It just, it took longer than it would have a more experienced engineer. But in the process, I learned a lot about how to delegate and when to ask the right kinds of questions. I would say that, yes, there is that culture that permeates certain companies where you're not allowed to suck. But my hope would be that people would learn that like sucking is awesome <laughs> because you can take away so much from that challenge of being terrible at something and turn it around. But you have to remember that I've got one foot in the sky. I don't know if I'm getting the metaphor right, but basically what I'm hoping for, I'm hoping for a world where on project plans, the project manager says, okay, team, let's set aside 25% of our time, which is three months out of every year to suck at something. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying acknowledge it to everyone in the organization and say, hey, it's perfectly fine to suck at something. There are some companies that actually do that. 
And I think that's also another great topic for another episode. Like for instance, Google, I think was the one that started the 20% free time. Yeah. And that really does stem from acknowledgement from the top saying we need people who have a growth mindset. And when you start with something new, it can be very discouraging, especially if you're in a high pressure environment where you need to churn out product. It can be counterintuitive, but you really do bring about a sense of, okay, like I'm psychologically safe to screw up, to just do something wrong because I'm doing. And the fact of just doing something that in and of itself is awesome. It does sound counterintuitive because you aren't necessarily like meeting a time goal, but then that's when you become a little more agile in your process of finishing a product and stretching that goal. It's a process. The way I actually powered through this is actually, I've got two pieces of advice and one piece of advice that actually everybody I've ever told this to, including you, came back and yep. said, up them. I still use this. <laughs> my advice was probably a mindset issue and it could be again a whole episode, but my advice that everyone I've ever given this to has called me in fact and has backed me for it. So I know it either works or it's done some good is just think that anything you're going to learn in the next few weeks is probably going to be the easiest thing you're going to do in your life. Because most people do want to earn more. They want to get better or something. They want to move on in their careers. So even if it's hard right now, there's going to become a time when it's so easy that you literally can do it in your sleep. So you just have to remember that what you're feeling right now is not how you're going to feel in a year from now. And you have to remember the past times in your life when you've been able to make that happen. It could be something as simple as a year ago when you could barely even figure out how to get in the building. I need a couple <laughs> of the better example. Maybe you can be the example person. Oh boy, no pressure. <laughs> Honestly, like I feel that way about every single thing that I do because every single day I'm presented with something that I had either never heard of or it's something that I had heard of, but presented in a new way, in a new sort of situation. Certainly when you're scaling a project, that can stretch your brain into like new ways of learning how databases work and why you would like create index tables and how you can get into locking. All these terms are esoteric, but then on the other hand, like getting used to that, it's like, oh, wait, I didn't know that last year, but I totally know that now. And I know why certain things have to be done in such a way uh, to prevent situations in which customers would be complaining, for example. But at the time, it was just panic. <laughs> Something that people can identify, even if we come up with an example in a different industry. One example, for anyone starting to cook, right, in, say, a restaurant, they always give in the sous chef job and it's they're cutting onions and they're peeling potatoes and they take a lot of time to do that. And then there's a time when they can do it literally without watching their fingers. And something like that is an example. I have, for the last eight years, have been trying to learn how to play guitar. <laughs> I can play a watered down version of Malaguena and some shapes of notes, but I have gotten better because I've taken on little challenges of like, oh, well, I could never do that because I can't stretch my fingers that far. Like something that's really silly. And the reality is just takes like 
concentrated practice every single day for like even just five minutes and it starts to become almost second nature. I'm still not I'm good by any means, but it's one of those things like you're turning that daunting pit in the stomach into, oh, I'm really excited to accomplish this. Even if it's just something as like playing a scale on a guitar. Speaking of pit in the stomach, I do have a little bit of advice. And this was actually when I first started stand-up. I roped myself into doing stand-up for about a year. And I remember the very first time I got up on stage, my friend had just ordered a glass of scotch on the rocks and he was settling down to enjoy it. <laughs> Why would you ruin scotch that way? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed it and I downed the entire scotch in two gulps. Just before wow. I was going to get up on stage. <laughs> you should have seen his face. But uh, <laughs> I honestly was considering breaking up with all of my friends. And most people think I'm joking, but I came up with a plan just before I was about to get up on stage about how I could stop talking to my friends because I wanted to run out of that comedy club. I believe it. I mean, that level of shame, it's real. Your brain is trying to protect you. You go into fight or f flight mode and you happen to be in flight mode. <laughs> as soon as I got up on the stage, Everything went away and I got the first laugh and that was it. From that day onwards, I was just basically hooked. And I think this is useful because I don't think a lot of people are going to try stand-up because it is scary. Some of our audience members might, but here's something that I think is actionable. One thing I realized is that just showing up makes you better than 50% of all the people who are trying to do that. And what I mean by that is at least in terms of comedy, just that day itself, I saw a couple of people who were also doing comedy for the first time and they got on stage and they basically were trying to form jokes on the fly. They didn't prepare. And that's what I mean by showing up, just preparing, just sitting down and saying, okay, let me give my best shot at this, even if I fail. That itself makes you better than 50% of everyone on the planet. Oh, yeah. And some of the best comedians on the planet, like they will prepare stuff and they'll test it in front of an audience, but they'll make a concerted effort to prep a, a whole bit or several bits. And then when they're on stage, test an audience. I guess if you are doing improv or if you're doing some kind of like audience interaction, maybe you would form a joke on the moment or on the fly. But I can't imagine doing stand-up and then just before you're about to go on, just starting to write jokes. Like, I'd be like, knock, knock. <laughs> It was literally what you're just saying. Basically, they were trying to form a knock-knock joke on the spur of the moment. Let me give you one funny story. There's a time they were trying to interview a programmer. And this programmer has actually been working successfully at a law firm. Wanted to really move on and we were interviewing for the job. And he said, okay, I'm in front of your office. I can't find you guys. And we stepped out of the office and no one was there. And we said, where are you? And he's describing the place. And we're like, no, no, that's not the location. You're up the street. Turn your car around and come to our office and he's like, no, I don't think that's the correct place. And my partner is not as patient as my business partner. So he grabbed the phone and he said, look, I'm going to tell you how to get to our office because I see your car up the street. Put your hands on the steering wheel, turn it around <laughs> 360 degrees, turn your car 360 degrees on. 180 degrees. 180 degrees, exactly. Put your <laughs> foot on the pedal, accelerate. Till you hit the stop sign, then stop and park your car. That's how you get your office. 
And <laughs> he finally did show up. If he had just showed up, he would have probably offered us a job because we weren't really picky. But the fact that he was arguing with us and saying, well, you guys don't know where your office is. Wow. That's a really great way to start an interview. Like just immediately break into an argument with your prospective employer. That's genius. That's what I mean by showing up. Showing up just means sometimes literally showing up. <laughs> that I would use a 50%, but the way that you would describe the actual preparation, I would say that will make you 90% better than people who otherwise wouldn't give it a second thought. And coding interviews have their own special place, like whiteboarding and those algorithms that you're never going to use on the job itself. But what it comes down to is if you're faced with a challenge, can you get along with the people you work with or will be working with? And can you talk in such a way that you can make complete sentences? You can tell a story about a problem from beginning, middle, end. And these are like fundamental skills. It's difficult sometimes when you're nervous or faced with something that is a, such a daunting topic that is technical skills. But it's really just breaking it down into smaller and smaller parts until it's easy. You could do it in your sleep. So if you were to summarize what people would need to do to punch through, what would you suggest to our audience? I always go back to Dr. Dweck's statement, and I'm paraphrasing, but she talks about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And... A fixed mindset would have that concept of if I learn this, if I'm smart enough to learn this, whereas a growth mindset would simply say when I learn this. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it takes practice. Sometimes it's tedious and painful. And sometimes it's a matter of looking at things with a new perspective. But if you think when I learn this, you start to open up a world of possibilities of, oh, I could learn anything. I think that's a great stopping point. And our hope is that for anyone looking to learn something new as an adult, coding is a great first step. Our next episode is going to cover why coding is a great first step. Coding is a great way to learn how to start learning as an adult. And that's what we hope to do with this yeah. podcast. We're planning to try to convince anyone who's listening in why learning as an adult is important and how they can actually start to code. Even if they don't want to become programmers, I think a lot of people could benefit from coding and actually using that to learn something new in their life. Any thoughts, solution? I agree 100%. Coding is something I think a lot of people actually do day to day without realizing it. And I think people already have the skill and the ability to break down problems into subroutines and algorithms. We want to thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter under the handle at LearnerHQ and on the web at learnerhq.com. 